Have you ever been reading your Bible, like a good Christian boy or girl, looking for life lessons, looking for examples to follow, looking for good morals, and then you come across something that shocks you, that makes you raise your eyebrows and pull back from the book a little bit and say something to the effect of, I know I didn't just read what I thought I read. That can't be right that that's in there. And I'm not talking about hard truth that you've got to accept. I'm talking about characters in the Bible doing things that would receive, shall we say, stronger than a PG rating if it was on TV. I've come across a few of those. I've read through the Bible several times. I've even seen this thing mocked on the internet. I've seen entire videos going through stories of the Bible that are a little sordid and mocking them. I say, this is what Christians believe. Isn't that crazy? They tell us that we're supposed to love people and we're supposed to save sex for marriage. Well, look at all these guys. Well, there is some of that in the Bible. And the book of Judges is perhaps the biggest compilation of all those stories. So let me remind you from the outset, not everything in the Bible is intended for you to imitate. You are to learn from all of it, but let me say the Bible provides bad examples just as it provides good examples. Now that seems obvious when you say it like that, but if you're just reading a story chugging along, oh, Samson, Samson's a great guy. What did he just do? Oh, I thought Gideon was a good guy. What's he doing over there? All right, I've, I've heard about this, this David guy. I didn't realize he did some of this stuff. Well, that's, that's true. The Bible does not shy away from the shortcomings of its heroes. And all of it is written for our instruction. And I must say, the book of Judges is going to give us a lot more bad examples than it is good examples. Because the book itself is a tragedy. It is a tragedy starting at a very high point in Israel's life, going all the way down to one of the lowest, perhaps even some of the most grievous sins Israel ever committed. It's all supposed to set up what comes after that. But I want to remind you about this from the very beginning so that maybe as you're reading ahead, you don't start wondering, am I supposed to be doing that? No, probably not. Let's talk about the structure of this book here at the beginning. I said it's a tragedy, and that is how it's organized. It's got a very clear three-part structure. Chapters 1 and 2 are part 1, and they give what we call a dual introduction, meaning there's going to be one positive thrust and then one kind of positive but kind of negative emphasis that'll set up what comes next. Chapters 3 through 16, which is the bulk of the book, the body of the book, that is a cycle of judges. We'll talk about what those are in a little bit. A cycle of characters that will start out blameless and go all the way down to plenty of blame to go around. There are seven major judges who we'll look at in turn. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Jephthah, and Samson. There's several other smaller, they're called minor judges, who are only given one or two verses. Shamgar is one of those. Tola, Jair, some of these. But it all spirals downward, getting worse and worse, until chapters 17 through 21, part 3, have a dual conclusion, just like there's a dual introduction. But these dual conclusions are horrifying. They are the worst sins you've seen Israel commit up to this point. Some people like to break it down like this. There's a military introduction and a religious introduction, just like there's a military conclusion and a, military and a religious conclusion. 
a good one and a bad one. This is where we're going to go. Traditionally, this book was authored by the prophet Samuel, but there are a few problems that the book itself raises with that tradition. Chapter 18, verse 30, for example, is going to reference something that happened until the exile of the northern kingdom, which of course happened long after Samuel had departed the scene. But then again, in chapter 1, verse 21, it's going to mention that there were still Jebusites in Jerusalem to that day. Now, we know that stopped being true when David conquered Jerusalem. So you have one piece that says to this day that happens before David, maybe during the time of Samuel. But then another piece in chapter 18 that is something that clearly happened after Samuel. We're not bound to the tradition. I don't think there's any reason why we can doubt that Samuel wrote the bulk of this. Perhaps he wrote the initial piece or brought the stories together. Uh, it seems most likely that there was some editor, Ezra usually gets credited with this stuff, uh, but it seems to me that this is before the exile of Judah, that an editor brought it all together, completed the work, gave it its finished form during the monarchy of Israel. And there are reasons for that that we'll get into. Let's talk about the timeline here. What time period is the book of Judges covering? Well, you know, the book of Exodus covered a 40-year period. The book of Joshua, most of it covered a seven-year period, and then it, it summarized the 25 years until Joshua's death. Judges is going to be much longer. Judges is going to cover centuries of time, not good centuries. And trying to figure out exactly where it fits in the chronology can be difficult. Let me run down the pieces for you so you know what we're working with. We believe, as the Bible lays out clearly, I've defended it in the past, the early date for the Exodus, which would have placed the Exodus around 1440 BC. We know that Joshua lived for 70 years past the Exodus, approximately 70 years. So there's another timestamp for us. Jephthah, in chapter 11, verse 26, is going to comment to the Ammonites that, that they have been living in the promised land for 300 years at that time. So that gives us another time stamp. We also know from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that it is 480 years from the Exodus to the day Solomon began to build the temple. Problem with that is that Judges is going to record 410 total years of history. So if you take 410 years of Judges plus the 70 years from the Exodus to the death of Joshua, that takes you to 480, which gives you no time for the ministry of Samuel, the reign of Saul, or the reign of David before Solomon became king. So, of course, as you might imagine, liberal scholars love to have a field day with this and say the Bible is, is unreliable, etc. But there's actually a rather simple solution to this that I had never considered, and maybe you haven't either, that the stories in the book of Judges overlap with one another. You think about the book of Judges, okay, Gideon was the judge over all of Israel. Samson was the judge over all of Israel. But if you read it closely, that's not actually what it says. What you're going to see are local stories that could be even taking place at the same time. And that's, in fact, one of the major themes of the book of Judges, is that the tribes were not working together. They should have been working together. They should have been coming to each other's aid, but they weren't. So while the tribes in the south are fighting the Philistines, the tribes in the north might have to be fighting the Philistines. The tribes in the east might be fighting against the Moabites or the Ammonites. And when you understand that, we might not be able to know exactly how the timeline fits, 
But we have some obvious timestamps in the Bible, and we can just assume that the Lord knows, and that's good enough for you and for me. I mentioned that, that sectionalized theme, that Israel was not helping each other. The tribes were not coming to each other's aid. This is a major theme that we'll see in the book, which is one of the reasons why we believe it was written at least during the time leading up to the monarchy, maybe during the reign of David itself, because it is going to portray Israel's separation as a weakness of the nation. You know, if you've read the book at the end, you continually have that refrain. What does it say? In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the climax is they're not working together. It's going horribly. They need a leader like Moses or Joshua. They need David or the son of David, shall we say. And to that end, you're going to see some subtle things as we go through here that will tell us this was probably written after the kingdoms had divided. You will see, even in this first chapter, the tribes of Ephraim and the tribe of Benjamin do not come across very well in this story. Meanwhile, the tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem are going to look very good by the end of this story. What could be the reason for that? It could be foreshadowing of the fact that the northern kingdom, led by the tribe of Ephraim, would separate from Jerusalem and the house of David, set up a pagan shrine at Bethel, which is not going to come off well in this book either. And Benjamin was the tribe of Saul, which was a failed dynasty in the land of Israel. It's all building up to what we're going to see in the book of Ruth, which tells us where the house of David came from, and the book of 1 Samuel, which is going to begin to tell the story of David. So this is where we sit in relation to the history. We're coming out of those, those golden years of the conquest, moving on to the golden years of David and Solomon, but you've got a big old mess in the middle. And that's the book of Judges. This is a heroic time in Israel's history. Some of their greatest heroes are going to come from this, but it's also tragic. And even men that we will admire through this story, we're going to have to put a little asterisk beside it and say, yeah, but. Demonstrating their need for a king, which ultimately demonstrates all of our need for a king, not just David, the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the king of kings. Amen? Well, for time's sake, I'm actually not going to read most of these early chapters. And the reason for that is because chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 2 is more or less going to summarize what we've already read at the end of the book of Joshua. So I would highly encourage you to go home and read this on your own. But I'm just going to summarize what we see in these chapters. And then we'll focus on the second half of chapter 2 tonight. The first thing we see in chapter 1 the high points of the conquest. It's going to more or less give us a flashback. It's going to start by saying after the death of Joshua, but then it's going to flash back like a good movie would do to show you where we've been up to this point. And it's going to show us two key battles in the first half of chapter one here. The first is the battle of Jerusalem. It's going to talk about the tribes of Judah and Benjamin working together to capture Jerusalem. They're going to encounter the king there, a man named Adoni Zedek, who was famous in the land for cutting off the thumbs and big toes of his enemies so that they couldn't hold a sword. They couldn't walk properly, right? They'd cripple them. It was also a power trip thing for him. So when they captured Jerusalem and they captured Adoni Zedek, that's exactly what they did to him. And you might think, how barbaric. No, no, no. This is eye for an eye. This is the law. This is justice. And they took Jerusalem. 
You're also going to see the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, capture the city of Bethel, which is another big city. It would come to be one of the major cities of the northern kingdom. It's where Jacob had his famous dream of the ladder going up and down between heaven and earth. So the major cities of the south and the north were captured. So you can see how this is already structured for somebody that is familiar with the politics of the monarchy. It also repeats Caleb's story for us. We love Caleb. We love his son, Othniel. More about him next week. We're also going to see where the Kenites fit in. You maybe forgot about this, but the Kenites was another name for the tribe of people that Moses had lived with while he was in Midian. Jethro and Zipporah were Kenites. And in Numbers chapter 10, Hobab, one of the relatives of Moses, agreed to lead the people through the wilderness. And Moses invited him to stay with the people, go into the promised land with us, and this chapter tells us where they settled. It also is going to explain for you, I know you were worried about this, about if the city Bethel was originally called Luz and we conquered it and named it Bethel again, how come there's another city among the Hittites called Luz? I know you were very worried about that question. It's going to explain that when Israel conquered it, the guy that helped them conquer it went up and started Luz 2.0, new Luz up in the Hittite empire. These are details that don't matter to us, it would matter to them, to them, right? Living at this time. These early events are taking place during the retirement of Joshua. But what we see here is that Benjamin is unable to conquer the Jebusites, which is why later David and Joab are going to have to come back and take Jerusalem again. They possessed the city, but they didn't own it. They didn't have the authority to rule from there, which casts a little bit of shade on the tribe of Saul. But it's also an ominous note for the entire nation moving forward. It's like the Lord is with you, but for the first time we read they were unable to conquer someone God had given into their hands. This is exactly what picks up in the second half of chapter 1, verses 27 through 36. It's a long list of all the tribes and the peoples they were unable to conquer. Remember, Joshua divided the land and he said, you go here, you go there, you go there. And many of them, most of them, all of them were unable to conquer everything that God gave them, with the possible exception of Judah. It seems that Israel had trouble, if you read these carefully, descending into the plains, into the lowlands. Up in the mountains, they seemed to have the advantage, but the Canaanites had iron chariots, which is a huge technological advantage. And it also gives us an indication of where we are in world history here. The Bronze Age was ending. The Bronze Age, which is the time of the Iliad and the Odyssey and all those great Greek legends. Now we're moving into the Iron Age. The Hittites had discovered iron. And since we're right on the, the bubble between the two, sort of like going into the nuclear age, there was a big strategic difference between the tribes that had iron and the ones that didn't. Because a bronze sword coming up against an iron sword is going to get chopped in half. You're going to see later that the Philistines were the only ones that had swords. And you might say, wait a minute, they had swords before. What happened? They had iron swords. What's the point of going to battle against an iron army with bronze? So you can see all this taking place here. If you're a history buff, you might understand some of those details better than I do. But what it says they did mostly is they put the Canaanites to forced labor. So they're a subjugated people, but they're not eradicated. They're not driven out. They're not destroyed. They have called, for example, the country of Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires, because they say every country constantly has gone through this, the country of Afghanistan and taken over, but they never last because Afghanistan is a rough place to be. And that was one of the taunts that was leveled against the United States when we went there. This is an example of a similar kind of thing. Yeah, you rule us, 
but we're still mounting resistance against you. We actually see the last one is that the tribe of Dan was driven out of their own land. Rather than driving out the Amorites, they took possession under Joshua, but then the Amorites came back and drove them out of their land back into the hills. And we're going to have to find out what the tribe of Dan does, and it's not going to be pretty. Samson comes from Dan, but that's going to be about the high point for that tribe. Reading all this, though, causes us to raise our eyebrows a little bit, especially coming out of the book of Joshua, and say, what's going on? Why is this? Why are these nations, are these tribes unable to conquer these nations that God promised them? Well, that's what the next section answers. If you look at chapter 2, the first 10 verses narrates a visit from the angel of the Lord. You might have a translation that says the messenger of the Lord. That's an attempt to make it more neutral. The word angel is a Greek word or a Hebrew word, malak, that means messenger. That is what angel means. But uh, the debate is over, is this like a prophet, a messenger from the Lord, or is this actually an angel from the Lord or even a Christophany? I think what you have here is the Lord appearing to the people as he had at the tabernacle before. The angel of the Lord. This is a very similar story to Joshua chapter 24, when old man Joshua gathered all the tribes together. Remember, he said, you are not able to serve the Lord because they were not willing to get rid of their idols. I believe that this oracle that they see from the Lord might be what sparked that speech from Joshua in the first place. The famous, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But God tells the people in this chapter, I will not drive out the Canaanites before you anymore. And you say, well, that's a rather strong switch, isn't it? Why is that? The Lord says, because you have begun to make covenants with the people and have not destroyed their altars. That was the, the law of the harem, remember? To drive out the people, don't make a covenant with them, smash their altars to pieces. I don't want even, anyone even to know the names of those gods anymore. But they weren't doing that. They were making covenants, they were making treaties, and they were not destroying those altars. No doubt that was part of those treaties, that if you're going to have peace with us, you can't go around desecrating our holy sites, even though it's exactly what Israel was supposed to do. And so God says, I'm not driving out those tribes anymore. You're on your own. And the place where they met, they gave the name Bochim, which means the weepers, those that weep before the Lord, because they were heartbroken at the thought that God's not going to be with us anymore. And they worshiped the Lord and they made sacrifices. And I think that's where you can fit into this story where Joshua came up and said, all right, everybody, it's time to get this together. In any case, verses six through 10 explain how Joshua died, as does that whole previous generation. I like to call this Israel's greatest generation. They're the ones that not really anything negative is said about them. Even when they mess up, they get it together and they do the right thing. And we start to look to the next one. But if you look at verse 10, let's read this together. He says, All that generation, that of Joshua and Caleb, also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It's kind of impossible to read that without hearing the echo of Exodus chapter 1 when it says a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. A new generation. They're going to be trouble. And it's going to outline for us in these next several verses the downward spiral of Israel that the rest of the book is going to narrate. That it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. If I may use the illustration, like getting flushed down the toilet. 
getting closer and closer and closer. That is about how God is going to feel about these people. Which is very instructive for us. Perhaps you have found yourself struggling with sin before like Paul did. Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, Wretched man that I am. I don't do the things I want to do. And the things that I swear I'll never do again, that's the thing that I end up doing. I find a law in my members that whenever I want to do good, evil is close at hand and I'm being torn back and forth between the two. If you've ever felt that way, this book is for you. To scare you straight, as we say. It's time for us to break loose and start walking in freedom. Something the Israelites never learned to do until much later. To stop messing around with sin, to stop leaving the altars erect, and to stop making covenants with wickedness. Tonight we're going to talk about breaking that downward cycle. To snap out of it, which is going to be what we're begging Israel to do all the way to the end of this book. But if we're going to understand that cycle, we better read verses 11 through 19. And this gives us the best introduction to the book. It's going to tell you what it's going to say, and then it's going to say it. Verse 11, speaking of that last generation that did not know the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges, circle that, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell. That's the downward spiral of Israel. It's not a pretty picture. We've seen the last of the glories of Israel for a while. And this cycle is something that they went through, but that we ourselves also can endure. So we're going to break down what we just read into six pieces, if you're taking notes, about what it means to live your life in a downward spiral of sin. The first step in the downward spiral is rebellion. Rebellion. This is when sin and idolatry take hold of a person. It says they abandoned the Lord. Doesn't that sound awful? Can you believe that? After all that God has done through Exodus and the book of Joshua, they abandoned the Lord. Specifically for Israel, this abandonment took the form of idolatry. 
They began to worship other gods. And it uses the illustration that will be used throughout the Old Testament. They whored after other gods. They committed prostitution. They committed harlotry. The old King James translates it, they played the harlot with other gods. The Bible often compares the relationship between God's people and himself as a marriage. And if the Lord had been bound in marriage to his people Israel, they were committing adultery by going after these other gods. We're introduced to these names, perhaps for the first time, although they've been mentioned before, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Baal, it actually has a break in it, it would be pronounced Baal, was the god of power, the god of the thunderstorm, the god of the rain. If you're familiar with Zeus, that's who Baal was. It was the Mesopotamian version of that. The gods and the, the pantheons were very similar between these different cultures, perhaps because of Philistine influence, or perhaps it's the other direction too. And the other one is the Ashtaroth. Now you maybe know this, Im, I am, is the masculine plural ending in Hebrew. Oth, O-T-H, is the feminine plural ending. So when you see Ashtaroth, it could be the Asherahs. It's a plural noun, the Ashtaroth. You'll see this uh, put out many different ways. The Asherahs, the Asherim, which is actually technically incorrect. You know, the Astarte is the Babylon way of putting it. This is the, the divine bride of Baal, the goddess of sex. She's also the goddess of war. She's the goddess of love. That's the sanitized way of putting it. Both of these gods were worshipped with sexual immorality in order to secure blessings, especially fertility blessings, fertility for the earth, the harvest, and also fertility for oneself. The Baals were generally worshipped with large standing stones, edifices to power, and the Ashtaroth were worshipped in groves. There would be groves of trees and they would carve these pornographic images of this exaggerated female sexuality in order to stimulate lust in the worshipers and then they would copulate with the so-called priestesses and the priests of Asherah. If you're worshiping the god of sex, how do you worship the god of sex? You have sex. So you can see also, by the way, why the Lord compared this idolatry to adultery. This was their rebellion. Our culture also obsesses over power and sex, does it not? Now, back in the day, sin was personalized and worshipped. You, you gave it a name. We're worshipping the goddess of sex. We're not just worshipping sex itself. Today, we don't do that. We don't personalize things. We just worship them. We just worship them. We really worship ourselves. Consider that. Power. The pursuit of power, the pursuit of domination over something, the pursuit of money and influence and status. Is that not something that consumes our culture today? Even those that call themselves anarchists and say we don't care about that stuff spend all their time fighting for certain people to have more power and other people to have less power. It's the most important thing in the world to them, even though they say they don't care about it. And sex, of course. I don't even know if I need to convince you of this one. It's everywhere. In my opinion, the engine that is driving all of this nonsense with gender and sexuality is pornography. That's driving all of that. And until we want to address that issue, then we're not going to correct the rest of it. But it's glamorized in television. It's glamorized in books. It's just normal life. 
Rather than teaching our teenagers to abstain from sex, we teach them how to make sure you don't get sick or have a baby by having sex. That's how we think about it. Both of those things, power and sexuality, we cannot comprehend culturally that these things are wrong. You come up to somebody and they say, we've got to solve this problem. We've got to solve teen pregnancy. We've got to solve STDs. We've got to solve all these uh, unwanted children. What are we going to do? The church comes along and says, you need to control your body until you're married and people scoff at you. That's not helpful. Well, until you're willing to fix that, you're going to continue to reap the fruits of it. And just try to go around and tell people that chasing power and status is not righteous. They say things like, that's what poor people think. That's what losers say. That's what people that don't have any power say. You come along to somebody that wants to talk about the empowerment of the underclass or the empowerment of women or all that, and you come along and you say, power isn't something we should be chasing. They'll say, check your privilege. It's because you have power. We don't recognize these things as sins. Let me ask you this question, guys. What sin has a hold on you? What's the idol you're worshiping? Let's put it this way. If you were living in a polytheistic society, if you were living in ancient Israel or ancient Rome, which temple would you be frequenting? Which blessings would you be seeking for your life? Do you not realize it is rebellion against God to chase these things? You know that the pride of life, the pursuit of power and status, vain glory, the Bible says, is rebellion against God? Do you not realize that the lascivious pursuit of sex is rebellion against God? Here's what's so terrible. Both of those things have their good and proper place. And when sanctified and brought under the lordship of Christ can be greater than you ever thought possible. But we think that we can skip that part and just enjoy it. You say, I don't see what the big deal is. They didn't see the big deal about going to the harvest festival and worshiping Baal to make it rain. Well, Baal's in charge of rain. God's in charge of everything, but Baal's in charge of rain. What's the big deal? No other gods before me. All the time, they were claiming to be servants of the Lord, as we do. But as 1 John 2, 4 says, if you say you know God, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. That's step one. Step two, the second step of the downward spiral is oppression. God giving them over to the nations. It says here he gave them over to plunderers. He gave them over to their enemies so they could not withstand them. That's the book of Judges. It's going to be a long chain of stories of raiders and oppressors dominating various sections of the promised land by God giving them permission. Because nobody takes command of God's land without his say-so. It's going to be one thing after another. And then so-and-so from Midian afflicted them. And then Moab began to oppress them. And then this group. And then that king. And then the Philistines. And then the Ammonites. This was God's judgment. And this is what happens in our lives too. If you persist in your rebellion, you are going to see spiritual oppression come into your life. I'm not talking about demons necessarily, although that can be part of it. But God's most common way to judge sin is to allow the negative consequences to happen. We've been seeing that in the book of Revelation. What's the worst judgment God is going to put upon the world? To stop restraining us. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. To allow the consequences to catch up with you. Let's say you're the man who's worshiping Baal. You're the man that lives your life for status and power and wealth. Or if we can also say it this way, if you're a woman who is seeking that kind of person so that you can get that vicarious power and status and wealth. And you're even willing to step out and leave this man if you can find another man with more power and status and wealth. It's all too common. 
What are the example of oppression coming into that person's life? How about the stock market crashing? How about you going broke, losing your job? Is that always oppression? No, but if you've placed all your energy and all your power and all your life and identity into that job and then it's gone, men shoot themselves over that. Because who am I now? Is God causing that to happen? God has been warning you all along not to put all your eggs in that basket. Or what about... What about the athlete that devotes himself, gives himself only to his sport, only to suffer a season-ending injury? You've met these people in high school and college that didn't put anything else in their life. Everything is football. Everything is baseball. Everything is basketball, track, whatever it is. Then you break a leg. You blow out your knee. You get one too many concussions. Now that path is completely blocked off to you. What do you do? People fall apart. If you're worshiping the goddess Asherah, what happens? Well, these are obvious. An unexpected child comes into the midst. This wasn't the plan. If you do the baby-making thing, babies are going to come. Isn't it interesting how you see people online or wherever where they, they really resent you describing sex as <laughs> reproduction? Because they're trying to remove reproduction from the reproductive act, which you can't do. Diseases. We don't talk about that much anymore, but that is so incredibly common, especially on college campuses and high schools. It's one of the things that Positive Choices treats a lot. Or, at the very least, although sometimes you might wish you had one of those other things, a broken heart. As we used to say when I was in high school, it's like your, your body and your heart is like Velcro. You stick it to a number of things over and over and over again, it's not going to stick as well. You're going to lose that ability to bond with somebody the way you ought to. Now, such things are terrible, and I wouldn't wish them upon anybody, even somebody that's walking in that sin. But those kinds of things are inevitable. Is that God's judgment, or is that God just allowing what is normal to happen? Why did God do this to me? Perhaps God didn't do it to you. You spend your whole life telling God, get out of my life. And then something happens, and you want to turn around and say, God, why did you let that happen? That's inevitable. That's the oppression. Israel's blessing was tied to their obedience. So when they stopped obeying the Lord, that's only to be expected. And you can't say they didn't know. You guys got tired of reading about it in the book of Deuteronomy. Like, oh, this again. Okay, we won't, we won't worship idols. I get it. Well, now the Lord seems pretty wise in saying it that many times, doesn't he? What's the third thing? The third step in the downward spiral is lamentation. When the people begin to groan to the Lord, it tells us that they groaned and the Lord saw them. It's interesting to note, this passage does not specifically mention repentance here. Some people try to make a bigger deal out of that than I think I would. But it is interesting to see that he's not talking about them crying out to the Lord for help, just their groaning under the lash of their oppressors. It's emphasizing God's mercy rather than their own repentance, although both of them could be at play here. God could not stand to see his people suffer under the lash of an oppressor. God doesn't like it when his people suffer. Some of us need to get that into our heads. That's kind of God's thing, is to make sure we suffer just enough to be good people. That's like purgatory, man. What is that? That's not how the Lord works. When he sees his people under the lash of an oppressor, crying out to these false idols, bowing down before a stone or a stick to save them, God sees that and says, I've got to step in and do something. 
He hears their cry, like he heard their cry in Egypt, and he answers them. Maybe you are at step two or three tonight. You're like, you just described me. I've been living my life for this thing or that thing, and it's all coming back in my face right now. And I'm looking back at a couple nights in my life and thinking to myself, if I could just have that night back, it would be totally different. Can I tell you that God hears you? God hears you tonight. God is listening when you cry out, maybe when you just plain old cry. God's listening to that. When you say things like, oh God, someone's got to do something. Who's going to help me? God hears that. He listens to that. God doesn't sit there with his arms folded and say, well, you buttered your bread, now you can sleep in it. <laughs> God is a merciful God. The Lord cares for you. But the, the thing is here, tonight, your lamentation needs to turn to repentance. Not just weeping over your circumstances, but weeping over the sin that created your circumstances. Not just looking at what people are doing to you, but looking at what you yourself have been doing to build this kind of life for yourself. You know, uh, this might seem harsh to you, but I'll just say this. I've said it to the high school students I used to teach. I, I say it to the men that I speak to in prison. When they describe some story, something they were involved in, some horrible thing that they encountered... And they said, well, this man was about to shoot me. He was about to kill me. I had no choice. What was I supposed to do? Then you ask a few more questions. And you find out what kind of situation they were in. Well, you were hanging out at a gangbanger's house. You were smoking weed. You were running with a crowd you had no business running with. You were stealing from your boss. You were hanging out with those kinds of people. And they say, you don't know my situation. You've never been there. You're right, because I didn't build that situation for myself. Righteous people don't end up in those kinds of situations because they don't walk into them. They're not welcome, to be honest with you. I used to say that to my high school students. Well, everybody else was drinking. I say, well, what were you doing there? Don't just cry out for the circumstances. Well, we were just alone in our apartment and just one thing led to another. Well, what were you doing alone in your apartment? Don't just lament the circumstances. Lament the sins that built those circumstances. And don't just cry out for help. Cry out for transformation. God, you've got to make me into the kind of man that doesn't do things like this. The fourth step, then, in the downward spiral is salvation. This is when God would raise up the judges. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak. They were the judges. Now, we hear judge, and we think, you know, all rise. The Honorable Judge Othniel presiding is not quite like that. Don't think quite like that. Think more worker of justice, bringer of justice. They did function in, in a judge kind of role, meaning they would be like Moses, where people would bring their disputes to them and they would organize them. But it's broader than that. It's broader than that. They were spiritual leaders. They were also, in most cases, military champions. Deborah was the exception to that, but she spent all of her ministry trying to get Israel's military champion to do his job. So it's all connected. As I just said, let me just say it again. The Lord delights to bring salvation to his people. When God named his son, he named him Jesus, which means salvation. Salvation. Like, oh, you know what name I like? Salvation. That, that, that sums up everything that I am and everything about that kid. God's not cruel or harsh like we are. 
God doesn't get bitter and just like to grind your nose in it when things go bad. In fact, some of us feel like God could stand to be a little harsher with people. We get like that, don't we? We get like that, that uh, Simon, the Pharisee, that invited Jesus to his house. And then the woman who is a sinner is weeping and weeping on his feet and wiping it with her hair. And he goes, if this man was really a prophet, he would not let this woman touch him. We're like that guy. Like, I, I know, that, you know that my transgender friend is, is, needs to come to Jesus, but they got a lot of work to do before they get there. No, they don't. The Lord delights in showing mercy. Don't be like the prodigal son's brother. My son was dead and now he's alive. Oh, you're just throwing a party for him. You never do a party for me, Dad. Don't be that guy. If you find yourself swamped in the mess you have made, that's hard, isn't it? Somebody does something to you, at least you've got your pride. But if you made this mess, not a whole lot you can say. Let your cries turn to prayer. God will step in to save you, to deliver you out of it. God loves to do that. He loves to swoop in and save people. Jehoshaphat, great example of this uh, in the Bible. He made an alliance with King Ahab, which, bad idea, man. Don't make alliances with bad people, especially that guy with his wife Jezebel. And they go to war together. And everybody starts following Jehoshaphat because they think he's the king of Israel. They think he's Ahab. And he says, Lord, save me. And it says, and at that moment, the people realize, oh, that's not Ahab. And they left him there. Jehoshaphat was a righteous man. He was in a place he shouldn't have been. He called out to the Lord and God got him out of there. Because God delights to show salvation to his people. You don't need, if you're in a, a deep, dark situation, everything's collapsed around you, can I just say, you don't need more discipline and more focus. You don't need more, more grit to get through. You don't need more hustle and grind. You need a savior. You need our Lord Jesus. And that can take a serious blow to your pride, but it's probably for the best because your pride got you there in the first place. The fifth step in the downward spiral is restoration. This is the time of peace that would come under the judges. As long as they were alive, things went really, really good. They would follow the Lord. They would know peace in the land. And this is what we want to see in our own lives. The restoration of what's been broken. Peace in our spirits. Peace in our heart. How would it feel if you're wrestling with constant, persistent sin? Just think of this. How would it feel to have no guilt and no shame every day? You wake up in the morning and the only thought in your heart is joy. Just thank you, Jesus, for the day. You can start praying without having to confess that same old sin again. Lord, I did it again. I'm so sorry. How'd you like to live like that? That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what God desires for you. God doesn't want you to live under the constant affliction of sin. saying, oh, at least I'm going to heaven. Is that what Jesus died for? He said, that's what the thief does. A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And step one is dealing with that sin, friend. At peace with God. At peace with yourself. That's what comes when we call out to the Lord and salvation comes in. However, there is a sixth step, unfortunately. If Israel could have stayed here, if they could have followed the Lord after the judge died, if we could come to the Lord, be restored and saved and stay there, then this would be a happy ending roll credits. But the sixth step in the downward spiral is repetition. When it starts all over again. 
And it says they do things even worse than their fathers. This is why it's a cycle. This is why it's a flush. It's a toilet bowl. Judges, as a book, narrates the canonization of Israel. Rather than the Israelization of the land of Canaan, the opposite is going to take place. Even the judges themselves are going to get worse and worse and worse. You're going to start out with Othniel, where nothing bad is said about him. You move on to Ehud, and you're going to go, all right, it's a little, little dodgy what you did there, but okay, you know, it's good. Then you get to Deborah and Barak, and it's like, okay, why is the woman leading, and why is the man a coward? But hey, you know what? They did what God asked them to do. You're going to get to Gideon. First half of the story, woo! Second half of the story, everybody worship this golden ephod. That's not good. Then you get to this guy named Abimelech, rather distasteful character, a murderer. Then Jephthah, who sacrifices his own daughter to the Lord. Then Samson, and I don't need to tell you about all Samson's problems. Now these are heroes, but you can see that the quality of the hero is diminishing over time. They're cutting it. It's not the concentrated dose of righteousness. This is what happens. The Psalm, uh, Proverbs writer said, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his iniquity, to his sin. So many people come to church, come to God just long enough to feel better about themselves, and then they go right back. As soon as the feelings of guilt calm down, we're right back at it. And sometimes that's why people come to church. Because they can balance their life out. I feel bad when I sin. Church makes me feel better. So now I can go back out and sin some more. Have you ever endured this cycle even a little bit? If you're in it right now, can I just say, aren't you sick of it? Aren't you tired of that Romans 7 life of always saying, wretched man that I am? That's not the destiny of a believer. Jesus has promised us deliverance and victory as Israel was promised deliverance and victory. So if you find yourself in the midst of this cycle, you need to ask yourself, why? The Lord is going to explain why. Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The literal translation there says the nose of the Lord burned against Israel. That's a euphemism. It's a Hebrew euphemism. It might sound strange to you. His nose burned. We say our face got hot when we were angry. You ever get angry and you can feel it? And the face is getting red. You can feel it right here. That's what it's saying about the Lord. His anger was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. These verses also kind of summarize Judges. God withheld their blessings. Why? Because of sin. He refused to let them progress from this stage to the next until they had dealt with their sin. And that's how it works in your life and mine. The Lord will not allow you to progress to the next stage of blessing until you have passed the next stage of sanctification because the Lord knows you are not ready for it. You cannot handle it. Maybe you prayed for something over and over and over again. God, why aren't you giving it to me? And then you finally get it. And now you look back and realize, man, if God had given me that when I asked for it, I would have made a big old mess. I'm so glad I didn't get that job at that time. I'm so glad God didn't have me marry that man after all. I'm so glad, whatever it might be. It's sin. 
That's why you're in that cycle. It's sin. It's not the will of Jesus for you to struggle with sin. It's not. It's simply not. It's Jesus' will for you to overcome. And there is a way to break out of this cycle. Are you ready? This is worth the price of admission right here. How do you break out? Total submission to Jesus Christ. I didn't say work harder. I didn't say more spiritual push-ups. I said submission. How did J uh, Jacob win the fight with the angel? He tapped out. He wept. He sought his favor. Please, stopped wrestling. You know, psychologists talk about the self with a capital S. And that life is about becoming your real self and letting your real self come to the, the forefront and, and being integrated. You know what the Bible says about yourself? It needs to be crucified. Death to the self. That's the cry of the Christian. Death to the self. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny his self and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Meaning, go hang on that cross. Lose your life for my sake so that you can find it for real. Do you want to know the tragedy of the book of Judges? Israel knew the cost of their sin but they were willing to pay it in order to get the fleeting benefits they got from it. We know that if we serve these idols, that the Lord is going to judge us. But I'd rather serve the idols and take the judgment than deny the idols and have no judgment. They went for it anyway. They forgot on purpose. And that's where many people live. They are willing to take less of the promised land if it means they can continue to walk in sin. For many people, the allure, the glitter of what they can gain through sin is worth more to them than the life that Jesus will give them if they stop. The allure, I've seen this before, of having a popular child. It might seem odd to you. But I've seen this several times, and I actually saw it recently, which is why I'm bringing it up. People that maybe didn't have a lot of friends when they were kids, weren't really running in the cool crowds, they weren't good at sports, but they've got this kid. He, all right, this boy can play baseball. All right, he's kind of a brat, but that's cool. That's just him being an alpha kid, you know? Let him get out there and do his thing. And they refuse to put any restraints on this child. Or mothers who don't feel like they had a chance to be beautiful and appreciated when they were children, but now they've got a beautiful daughter. So rather than prevent her from dressing immodestly and posting lurid photos online, they kind of encourage it. They want everybody to know. They want her to dress that way. They want her to act that way. They kind of like that all the boys are drooling over her because it's like, oh, now it's like I'm being validated. You need to put a stop to that. Your child's going to walk in sin and fall away from Jesus. I know, but I'd rather pray about her and kind of admire her in the back of my mind than actually fix it. People that would prefer to get likes on Instagram than to have Jesus approve of their life. I'm going to continue to do this because what I get from that is worth more to me than what Jesus can give me. Or the benefits of an unleashed temper. 
It feels good when you just haul off and let your temper go. And there are some people that those moments of their life are the reason they are alive. And they hold on to it and they don't want to get rid of it because what I enjoy in this moment, I don't want to give up. Or an orgasm is worth more to me than hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you understand what Jesus demands of you? Death. Death is final. If you don't believe me, go walk through the graveyard with your Bible and let the Lord remind you. That's the kind of transformation salvation requires. Don't come to Jesus and say, Lord, take my life, but I'm holding on to this. Is he going to accept that from you? Malachi said, offer that to your governor and see if he accepts that from you. I don't want you to keep on spiraling, friend. I want you to be free. I want you to walk in, in the life and liberty that Jesus provides. To have life serve you rather than you be subjugated by life. What do you have to do? You've got to die. Today. Not try to preserve it. Not make it work. Not compromise. Not make a treaty. Tear down the altar. Our judge, Jesus Christ, has already done everything that is necessary to secure your liberation. He paid the full price. And he is our king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Well, there's a king here today, and his name is Jesus. And when you come to him, you don't come with your list of demands. You bow your knee and you bare your neck, and you say, Lord, what do you have from me tonight? Renounce that old life. Shake off those shackles. Tear down the altars. Break the covenants you've made with evil. You begin a new cycle. Instead of that downward spiral of sin, it's a new cycle called sanctification, where instead of tragedy to tragedy, it's glory to glory to glory. Better and better and better. More righteous, more holy, more sanctified, leading not to death, but to everlasting life. That's a net called grace, but it involves you first coming and laying everything at the altar and saying, God, I'm ready to die to myself so that I can achieve and receive everything that you have for my life. Does it mean getting rid of everything that's possible in the old one? Yes, it does. But as our Lord said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 